This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're joined by Laura Casisto. She's the national legal affairs reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where she leads the paper's abortion coverage and also focuses on transgender issues, voting rights, religious liberty, and state courts. Laura led a team of reporters who received the 2002 Newswoman Club of New York's award for breaking news coverage for the fall of Roe v. Wade, which is largely what we are going to talk about today. I think everybody who is listening to this podcast knows that in June of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the right to obtain an abortion is not protected by the Constitution. They overturned Roe v. Wade in a case called Dobbs. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I want to now that we're a little more than a year out talk about the implications with an expert who is following the developments. So, Laura, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much. Now, I want to talk about the state of abortion rights and focus on legislation and litigation and really structure the conversation by focusing on three of your recent pieces. The first one is the oldest one, back from the beginning of the summer, where you talk about what the last year reveals about abortion. Then I want to focus on the litigation in Texas and finally finish with a case that we could see potentially come back before the Supreme Court, which is the Mifepristo litigation, the abortion pill litigation. So with that, Let's start with your piece, What a Year in Post-Roe America Reveals About Abortion. Just right off the top, we know that states are essentially free to ban abortions, um, more on the word essentially later, but can you talk to us about where we're seeing the biggest shifts? How many states have banned abortions, for instance? It's fewer than we expected. Um, the widely cited statistic, one that I wrote about, um, one that really groups on both sides talked about was that about half of states were expected to ban abortion post row. And that's not really, really where we're at. We're somewhere above a dozen states have banned many or most abortions. And that's really because opponents have hit two big major types of hurdles. One is political. Um, I think a lot of people probably have heard about these ballot referendums in places like Kansas, these upset victories for the abortion rights movement. And then the second reason is because a lot of these court cases have been taking longer than we expected to move their way through the courts. And in a lot of states, courts have at least temporarily blocked these bans from going into effect. So that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to continue to talk about. It sounds like there are somewhat predictably, in hindsight, political and legal hurdles for the anti-abortion movement to really fulfill its promises and or desires. And so you mentioned it quickly, but I'd like to focus on those political issues. Things aren't going exactly as planned for Republicans in Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan. You just mentioned it, but what's happening in those states? 
So I think what has been surprising, at least to some people, is that when you put this issue to voters, even in states like Michigan that are politically mixed or purple, whatever you want to call it, and even again in states like Kansas and Kentucky that are quite conservative, that when asked this question directly, voters generally are broadly supportive of abortion rights. They don't want to see the strictest kinds of restrictions on abortion, the kinds of bans that we're seeing pass in a lot of states. And I think that's sort of a little bit surprising to, to people. Um, and, and these include sort of voters who might vote for Republicans um, or who may be independent. But again, like abortion rights are just more popular, particularly with you know suburban women, those kinds of people than, than we had really expected. And This phenomenon, I think, is playing out in a very high-profile state Supreme Court race that we just experienced in Wisconsin. Could you highlight and or remind us for a moment what actually happened in Wisconsin? Yeah, I really think about Wisconsin as a de facto referendum on abortion rights. I put it with Kansas and Kentucky and Michigan. Um, I really kind of think about it as being a vote on how Wisconsin voters viewed abortion. And the reason for that is that there is an 1849 ban on abortion in Wisconsin. And it might sound sort of incredible to some people who haven't followed this closely that that would mean anything at this point, right? This is a, you know, a, a very, very old law. Um, but that law has been essentially dormant. It remains on the books, um, and it had really been kind of negated by Roe. And so once Roe fell, it opened the door potentially for prosecutors um, in Wisconsin to enforce that ban again. Um, And it's really going to be up to the the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin to decide whether to strike that law down. And so we had this race in Wisconsin in the spring, and that became the sort of defining issue in the race. And in particular, the kind of liberal-leaning candidate, Janet Protasiewicz, was really vocal about her support for abortion rights. And she won a very strong victory in in that state, um, one that's given liberals their first majority in the Wisconsin Supreme Court in a very long time, um, and just sort of a really kind of clear example of where abortion in some of these races can really kind of change the dynamic pretty dramatically. And we're talking about a state Supreme Court race where abortion, as you just said, really changed the dynamic. But I don't think people fully realize The difference between a state Supreme Court decision that protects abortion rights based on the state constitution versus a federal Supreme Court decision based on the U.S. Constitution. And I know you've written about this. Why are these state Supreme Court decisions more fragile? I mean, obviously, they only apply to that state as opposed to the entire country. But there are some other differences as well. Yeah, like I think it's probably helpful to sort of set as a baseline so people understand you know, that states have their own constitutions and that those constitutions in some cases do go further or can be interpreted differently than the federal constitution. So even though the U.S. Supreme Court has said, we don't think the federal constitution protects abortion, there are provisions in some of these states that are much more explicit provisions protecting equality and privacy. And so groups have been able to kind of make the argument that the state Supreme Court should read in kind of abortion protections into those state constitutions, even if those federal protections don't exist. But the tricky thing about that is that those courts are also composed in a really different way than the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court justices serve for life. You know, it took 50 years, right, to change Roe. And that's not what we're seeing at the state level, in part because 
many of to- in many instances justices are elected or they have retention elections um or they serve kind of terms you know five ten year terms so they, there's turnover um and they're just also more sort of subject to political pressure we're finding there you know even if they're not elected they may be appointed by the legislature um and so really kind of what we're finding is that these courts are sometimes reversing themselves in dramatically short periods of time. Um, South Carolina is is probably the best example of this. Earlier this year, um, they found um, that a six-week ban on the state violated a privacy protection in the state constitution. The female justice who authored that opinion retired. She was replaced, the legislature replaced her with a male justice, giving them the only all-male state Supreme Court in the entire country. Um, And then, you know, months later, they reversed themselves and upheld a new six-week ban. And I think that that has implications for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think it makes it very difficult for doctors and patients and clinics to plan. You can imagine what it's like to open and close and sort of not know what your future looks like. Um, and two, I think that it's sort of meant that even though abortion rights groups have been quite successful in this first year, that it sort of doesn't end, right? They're going to have to continue to put resources on this. They're going to remain on the defensive. Um, and so it's like not a kind of battle that like row where you win a big victory and maybe you get to kind of rest on your laurels for a little bit, um, which arguably they did too much at the federal level. But <laughs> that's such a clear and helpful explanation of the difference. This similarities are the composition of the courts change and their decisions may change. And we see this in other areas. I know you cover voting rights. We see this in North Carolina, for instance. But I think it's so important to remember that these state Supreme Court victories or defeats, depending on your perspective, are much more fluid and really not as etched in stone as we might expect from the U.S. Supreme Court. You mentioned the ongoing litigation in South Carolina. Are there Other cases, we're going to talk about the Texas case in just a moment, but are there other cases that you think people who want to stay educated on this issue should keep our eyes on? Florida, for sure. I think whatever happens in Florida will be one of the most important decisions since Dobbs, just really because of sort of the size of the state, the political importance of the state. It is one of the top abortion kind of providers in the country in terms of the number of abortions that are performed in that state. It's seen among the biggest, I think, the biggest increase of any state since Dobbs. And it's one of the very few states that still has access in the South. Um, and so for all of those reasons, it's a really important place to watch. And legally, it's a really interesting place too. It's also, also one of the few states where there is a fairly long-standing precedent in the state protecting abortion. The the Florida Supreme Court, I believe in the 80s, made a decision that, that a privacy provision in the state constitution protects abortion. Um, and so if the court reverses itself, it really would be a kind of powerful symbol of the way these courts have the ability, based on their changing composition, to reverse themselves. This is an all-Republican appointed court, the majority of the justices appointed by Ron DeSantis. Um, and so it's also going to be a very kind of political decision. Um, and so I kind of for all those reasons that that's one I'm I'm really watching very closely mostly honestly because and we I think forget about this a lot when we talk about courts and do this sort of legal analysis mostly honestly because of what a huge sort of human impact it will have it will really kind of largely cut off abortion access in the south and the idea that sort of a whole region of the country won't have access just has huge practical implications for folks in terms of how far they'll have to travel um and just kind of what the world looks like after that 
it's an important reminder whenever we talk about more abstract concepts like the right to privacy and it, whether it's protected in a state constitution or the federal constitution. And we talk about the politics that there are very real people who feel a very real impact on a daily basis. And some of those people have brought, I think, very novel challenges. And I think another challenge actually in Florida, not the one we're talking about, but actually comes from people who have said that a law banning abortion violates religious freedom protected under the First Amendment. And these are arguments that I think have flown a little bit under the radar. But to me, it strikes me as a very savvy legal strategy where you're trying to say, there's another individual right here. It's written in the Constitution. We're not talking about an unenumerated right. And this right to the freedom of religion, it's being trampled on when my state bans abortion. Could you walk us through that argument really briefly? You've actually done a great job of it. Um, and it's it's really fascinating. But yes, it is an argument that some religions, for example, Reform Judaism, kind of protect a right to abortion under certain circumstances. And so the argument is, for example, I actually happen to be a Reform Jew. And the argument that they're making is that if I went to my rabbi and said, I'm concerned that my pregnancy might endanger my life and I want to have an abortion, which they do, their argument is that my rabbi would tell me that under Judaism and the sort of sanctity of life that I should do that. Um, and so then they're kind of in turn going to the courts and saying, well, if my religion protects that ability to have an abortion, believes that it can be sometimes a religious imperative to have an abortion, these bans are, are knocking up against that. Many of these bans have very limited exceptions um, for the life or health of the mother um, in, the, in these lawsuits and, and that they aren't broad enough. They don't cover instances where religions would really require you to have an abortion. Um, they are really novel arguments. I think there's sort of fascinating because they've also sort of put religious liberty groups in a really interesting position, right? They don't want to be seen as saying, well, we're, they, I mean, impossible, right, for them to say, well, Reformed Judaism, Judaism is not a real religion, right? Um, and courts, as you know, are really quite deferential when people come to them and say, my religion tells me to do this. They don't really want to be in the business of kind of interrogating that. Um, and so these are really fascinating cases. I will kind of caution that one thing about them is Long term, it's unlikely that these mean the courts will wholesale strike down these abortion bans, right? Like, there's not really any kind of mainline religion that says you're required to have an abortion in every instance. But they may carve out some broader exceptions to these bans. And that would be a really kind of interesting and, and novel and, as you say, creative victory. And I think that leads us perfectly into the next big topic. You were talking about limited exceptions for life or health of the mother and there's a big case in Texas that I know that you've been covering and you've written about. This is a Texas case dealing with whether or not and how big the exceptions for the health of the mother are when it comes to these very strict restrictions and or bans on abortion. Now, recently, a judge said that women facing life-threatening emergencies, a term that seems open to interpretation, have been improperly denied abortions in the state. So thanks to you, we know the headline, but can you tell us a little bit more about the case and specifically the women at issue? Who were the plaintiffs here? What were they arguing? Yeah, the way I, I broadly think about this case is that I think legally, even in the best case scenario, 
it's probably a pretty narrow victory for abortion rights groups. But as we sort of talked about earlier, I think from a human perspective, it has been a really powerful tool in terms of highlighting the human impact. Um, and so I'll start up and talk about the first piece a little bit first. And it's exactly what you said, that the argument in the case is that the language of these of this bill, and there's sort of several other challenges around the country that mirror this now, but of kind of these types of bills, that the language was not written by doctors, it's vague, it's impossible to sort of decipher from a medical and scientific point of view. And so it's putting doctors in a position where they're not providing care, even when their patients are facing really dire medical emergencies, or sending their patients out of state, they're waiting until their conditions deteriorate. And so really, in kind of the best case scenario, that does not that's highly unlikely to mean that we see Texas's abortion ban struck down wholesale. What we're at best likely to see is the courts kind of carve out a broader, clearer exception for these sorts of types of medical emergencies, which are, I think, sort of have been a kind of crucial problem post-Dobbs, but are probably not the majority of abortions that sort of happen if abortion is legal. And I would say that's the sort of best case scenario. The Texas Supreme Court is quite conservative. Also, the nature of the appellate process in Texas is that once they appeal the trial court ruling, the ban went back into effect. And so it's not sort of something that's providing, at least right now, a lot of change, a lot of protection. But on the human side, I mean, I watched the testimony in that case. And it is whatever you think about this issue, it is impossible to have seen it as really anything other than gut wrenching. They had a series of women testify, women who had faced harrowing circumstances. One woman vomited on the stand. They they cried. They they talked about watching their, in some cases, this was women with sort of non-viable pregnancies who were forced to carry to term and, and having their baby die within their arms within hours. They talked about developing sepsis and and nearly dying, being in the ICU. Um, and I, I do think that from a kind of public relations or public awareness point of view, however you want to talk about it. The testimony in that case, seeing people testify under oath um, about that kind of a human sort of impact, it can't help us be sort of powerful for the abortion rights movement. I read the coverage and I 100% agree with you and watched what I could in terms of the press conferences. And these are women largely who wanted pregnancies. These are not unwanted pregnancies. And I think that made them uniquely positioned to make these arguments. And I'm thinking back to what Texas's argument could be in response, because we know that in the 1990s, then uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist said, well, abortion restrictions should be subject to some level of review. It's the lowest level of review, rational basis, but that it may not even be rational to have abortion bans that don't carve out an exception for the life or health of the mother because then we are putting another person at risk if you want to view this as a two-person situation. Was Texas able to respond to that legally? What was the main thrust of their argument here? Yeah, and I mean, it was 
really interesting to watch in particular the evidentiary hearing because of what a difficult position they they were in right like i i felt for the attorney for texas who's in this position of cross-examining these women who've undergone these sort of horrific circumstances and i think that's just very very hard for them to argue against or defend against but i think that legally the argument that they're able to make or that they're trying to make is that this is not a flaw in the way the law is written it's a flaw in the way that doctors are interpreting it and i've heard supporters of these laws make this argument in two different ways. One is just that these laws are new. Doctors and hospitals are still figuring them out. Hospital lawyers in good faith are being overly conservative in the way they're interpreting these laws. Things were always meant to have robust exceptions um, for medical emergencies. And then there's sort of a second piece of this argument that you sometimes hear, which is really that doctors, many, not all, but many obstetricians are generally supportive of abortion rights, or at least don't like abortion bans. They don't like the state telling them what they can me- medically do in their practice. And so there's sort of also an argument that doctors are politicizing these decisions um, and are really willfully interpreting these laws in a, in a narrow way in order to make a point. And that's, I would say, sort of a twofold argument that was made in the Texas case and that just supporters are making about these laws in general. That second argument is so interesting because it reminds me of the original Roe decision and how I think it was largely written in my reading and my view of the history around it to protect physicians, in part because of who wrote it and his connection to the Mayo Clinic. Um, But we have moved to talking about these laws as affecting women. Um, But it's always interesting to me when we go back to that conversation about protecting physicians and their ability to make certain decisions. Um, And whether or not they are chilled when they have to do things like determine whether or not we are at a point where the life of the mother truly is in danger enough to take the steps that they would otherwise take. I know our time is limited, and I know that people who are listening to the podcast are going to be wondering, what about the abortion pill litigation? And so Mifepristone is one of the two abortion pills that's used in the U.S. in over half of abortions in the country. I think this has probably been confusing litigation for people because there was an original suit, and the suit is not just about Mifepristone, it's about the power of the Federal Drug Administration to approve of drugs, even 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, and who can challenge that approval. So, I'm wondering if you could help us clarify kind of the beginning of this suit, who originally sued and what was the argument here? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I can't tell you how many people I've had to explain. This is not an abortion pill ban. It might de facto end up being that, but it's much more sort of complicated and nuanced than that. And so, yes, I mean, the origin of the suit is that it came from these anti-abortion medical associations, these individual doctors, and these are doctors who oppose abortion. And they filed suit, you know, essentially sort of making the argument that even though we don't ourselves administer this pill, that we are forced to treat complications from people who do take it, um, and that that takes time away from our practice. It sometimes forces us to violate our beliefs by completing an incomplete abortion. Um, and as you know, and I've heard you talk about this on the podcast before, that's a, a broad view of standing, but that's sort of where this this lawsuit originated from. And the people who filed this suit 
got what I would think is one of the best judges in the country to hear their case. Um, somebody who I think is very amenable to these arguments, Judge Kaczmarek in Texas. And as you said, this has been somewhat confusing for people because I think he has made decisions. They've gone to the Fifth Circuit. They've gone back to him. Without getting too much into reading the full docket, could you tell us where we are right now in terms of what has the Fifth Circuit said? Who has access to Mifepristone? And then let's continue from there. But what's the current state? So the current state is that we have a decision out of the Fifth Circuit that says that the original challenge, the challenge to the 2000 approval of the pill, that is outside of the statute of limitations. Too much time has elapsed, and they cannot, according to the Fifth Circuit, challenge that original approval. The Fifth Circuit, however, was more sympathetic to arguments about subsequent changes that were made that made the pill easier to access, that allowed doctors to give a lower dosage, um, that allowed them to give it later in pregnancy, that allowed the pill to be mail that delivered through the mail without having to see a provider in person. Um, and those those changes really did quite dramatically widen access to the pill. Um, and they said that those changes were made without the proper level of scrutiny. But the important thing to understand stand about that is that none of that decision that which would really quite dramatically change access to the pill, none of that decision is in effect right now. Um, because the Supreme Court during this long, fast moving, very kind of intense um, back and forth with litigation in the spring, the Supreme Court has said, anything that the lower courts do is essentially stayed until we take a look at this case. And I think that was likely a decision. I mean, I don't know what's in their heads, but likely a decision on their part to try to provide some stability because the the spring was truly chaos where I was talking to providers and they were saying like, we literally like are preparing for the possibility that tomorrow we will have to cancel like half of our appointments or have to completely change how we're administering the pill. And I think it was just sort of creating a lot of practical chaos on the ground. And so right now we're in a bit more of a stable time. I'm always think back to statements that Justice Kavanaugh made in the Dobbs decision where he said this essentially ends federal litigation when it comes to abortion rights. And whatever you think of the decision, that clearly has not been the case. It has not made this simply a state issue. And there will be other federal issues like the right to travel to obtain an abortion. I think there will be a focus on mailing abortion pills across state lines and even from other countries, only to say there's a lot more legal questions. And certainly Dobbs did not put this to bed. Now, you mentioned that the U.S. Supreme Court has kind of pushed pause. So we know where things are now. The Biden administration has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved. So just to make sure that we're fully educated on this issue, what's next? What's next in the immediate future here? So what's next is we're waiting to see if the Supreme Court takes the case. I find it hard to imagine that they won't. Uh, I, I don't think they want to. I mean, again, kind of trying to read inside of what the justices might be thinking. I don't think they want to. Um, I agree with you that I think they hope to get out of the abortion business for at least a little while. They hope that this would be settled, I think, really a lot through the political process as much as anything and not in the courts. But I think 
given the national implications that this case has, um, I think given also that, um, and I know you've also talked about this before, we've got this kind of somewhat contradictory decision in Washington. I think that it would be very difficult for them to just totally punt on this. I think they're likely to, to sort of take up this case. I totally agree. They desperately don't want it. And it's going to be very difficult to avoid. Just so people know, if the court does avoid the question, then the last Fifth Circuit decision is the one that stands. And of course, there could be conflicting decisions from other circuits, at which point the court, I think, is really just completely backed into a corner and they have to take the case. Laura Casistos, with that, I mean, you walked us through so many big questions that I have that really helped me clarify. I always follow your reporting in the Wall Street Journal, and I really want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. 